Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The home of common sense. Talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republican Mike Graham. I'm back. And guess who wants to be on my show? That's right, it's the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak. He's now speaking about how important maths is. I've got some maths questions for him, but let's go over right now to North London and listen to Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, on why maths is so important. ...adults have numeracy skills below those expected of a nine-year-old. And around a third of our young people don't pass maths GCSE. Now, it's not that we're not just good enough at maths. There's a cultural issue here, too. I'll be honest, when my two young daughters first heard me talk about them doing more maths, they weren't too excited. And that's just it. We make jokes about not being able to do maths. It's socially acceptable. We say things like, oh, maths, I can't do that, it's not for me, and everyone laughs. But we'd never make a joke like that about not being able to read. So we've got to change this anti-maths mindset. We've got to start prizing numeracy for what it is a key skill every bit as essential as reading. So my campaign to transform our national approach to maths is not some nice to have. It's about changing how we value maths in our country and changing the way our education system works to deliver it so that all our children get these vital skills for life. Now parents and teachers listening to this will want to know what that means for our children today. So let me tell you, we're in the process of making maths more accessible, building our children's confidence so that they don't fear maths. We're creating more sector-specific content that can excite young people about the relevance of maths for the careers that they aspire to, to help teachers bring maths to life in the classroom, from building sets for school plays to calculating the angles of free kicks or the speed of a Formula One car. We're extending our maths hubs, unique partnerships of expert schools that support maths teaching. And we're strengthening maths in primary schools, including with a new fully funded professional qualification for those that are teaching it. But we also need to address a very specific problem that's causing us to fall behind the rest of the world. We're one of the few developed countries where young people don't routinely study some form of maths up to the age of 18. They do it in Australia, Canada, France, Germany, Finland, Japan, Norway, and America. Why should we accept any less for our children? Of course we shouldn't. 
That's why I set out in January that we're going to change the way our system works so that everyone in our country will study some form of maths all the way to 18. But let me be absolutely clear. I am not saying that the answer is A-level maths for everyone. But we do need to work out the maths our young people should study. So we're going to look at what 16 to 18-year-olds around the world are learning. And we're going to listen to employers and ask them what they say the math skills are that they need. And that's why today I'm appointing a new expert group who will help us identify the core maths content that our 16 to 18-year-olds need and whether we need a new specific qualification to support that. But to repeat, that will not be A-level maths for all. And let me also be clear that we're not going to deliver this change overnight. We're going to need to recruit and train the maths teachers. We're going to work out how to harness technology that we need to support them. And we'll need to make sure that this maths is additional to other subjects, not instead of them. Just as here at the London Screen Academy, they don't teach maths instead of the arts, they teach both because they are complementary, not contradictory. So it will take time to implement this change, but we are taking the first step today by identifying the maths content that will give our 16 to 18-year-olds the skills they need to get on in life. And when we have that, then we'll come back with a detailed plan to deliver it. I'll just finish on a personal note. Every opportunity that I've had in life began with the education that I was so fortunate to receive. And maths was a critical part of that. Now, I knew it was important then. And when I look at how the world is changing, it's only going to be more important for my children and yours. So I won't sit back and allow this cultural sense that it's okay to be bad at maths to put our children at a disadvantage. We've got to change this. We've got to value maths and what it can do for our children's futures. Giving our children a world-class education is the single most important thing we can do. It's the closest thing we have to a silver bullet, the best economic policy, the best social policy, the best moral policy. And that's why I'm proud that it's our policy and I will never stop striving to achieve it. Thank you. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak there with possibly the most unimportant speech he's ever made. Um, I'm sorry, has anybody actually <clears throat> listened to what people are talking about on the streets of this country? There's an election coming up uh, on May the 4th, uh, a, a local council election, albeit, but have you been listening to people going on and on about how important it is to know how good you are at maths? Really? I'm not. Um, Lord Stuart Jackson is here. I don't know how good you are at maths, Stuart, but um, I'm slightly wondering whether this is the most important issue facing Britain as uh, we speak today. Well, I think Rishi Sunak has a reputation as being somewhat of a technocrat. And um, I think these kind of things matter to him. I think they are important, of course, but we've got to remember that You've got to attract maths teachers uh, into education, very skilled graduates, and you've got to pay them well and you've got to give them a good career progression. And I think that is perhaps what is missing. And I hope that this expert group that the Prime Minister is putting together 
is in a position to address those issues because I don't think there's anyone who is going to make the point that we don't need people who are more numerate and literate uh, and we don't need people that are skilled in things like um, science, tech, research and engineering. But I think it's you can will... Uh, you, you can will the way, but you can't necessarily will the means with another expert group. You've got to have, I think what people are looking for is action by the election. And I think that includes paying maths teachers more and trying to retain them. We don't want to train them and then, then leave for Australia or the United States or wherever. Well, exactly right. And I've written down a few maths questions of my own. For example, one, if every illegal migrant brings six members of their family with them, how soon before Britain is full? I don't know if you can answer that one. Uh, what percentage of my income is taken up by my new electricity bill? And how many maths teachers does it take to change a light bulb? To which the answer obviously is none, because they're all on strike. Well, Mike, <laughs> you're back. You're cooking with gas, I think. I Sorry about think that. Only, I mean, I don't mean you... to be I don't mean to be disingenuous here, but you know, you know, these are important questions. Yeah, I mean, look, the the Slogans behind the Prime Minister are the strategic objectives that he has to deliver by the time of the general election. You know, halving inflation, um, growing the economy, creating more jobs, reducing the debt, stopping the boats and cutting waiting lists. And you're quite right, those are the priorities. But I do think that something like a maths policy like this, where more of our children and young people are going into maths to become maths teachers, are confident with maths and proficient in in the discipline is still important if we want to be a globally competitive economy. So I don't think it's mutually exclusive. Is it the top priority for voters uh, in, in my part of the world, in Peterborough? They're probably not talking about it, but I don't think people are going to say it's a bad thing. Let's just see in a year's time whether we've got some real uh, objectives achieved in this strategy. Yes. I mean, I was away in France last week, and of, of which I shall tell you more about later. But what was interesting was when I came back, uh, I was reading a lot of articles over the weekend uh, in various different organs, not all necessarily right-wing organs, saying that, uh, you know, Keir Starmer may be blowing this, that he's taken on this kind of ridiculous mantle of, you know, my party isn't uh, uh, something that I'm in charge of, therefore they can put adverts up which ridicule people, uh, which uh, point fingers at uh, politicians, which basically try to make out that somebody like Rishi Sunak uh, is a much nastier person than he really is. Um, and, and it's almost possible that Keir Starmer is going to miss the penalty, miss the open goal and actually lose the election. Well, I think there are two elements to this. One is that the Conservative Party is beginning to uh, to demonstrate a degree of discipline, which it didn't have six months ago. Mm. It was a fratricidal, uh, you know, mess, basically, six months ago. It is coming together around some key straightforward messages. And people are beginning to say, well, look, let's give them a chance at least to deliver. You've got a new prime minister. OK, he doesn't have a mandate, but he is the prime minister. And... Um, Let's see if he delivers. But the other issue is, of course, as you get closer to the election, voters are quite reasonably going to ask, what's Labour's alternative? And can we imagine Keir Starmer as Prime Minister on the steps of Number 10 Downing Street? And in that respect, Labour's poll lead uh, flatters the situation and flatters them, because actually, if you go into focus groups and listen to swing voters, they're not impressed by Keir Starmer. They think he's vanilla he's boring, he jumps on bandwagons, he's got no fresh ideas, he just carps all the time. There's just a big empty space. Now, that might be unfair to him, 
But as someone said in the newspapers over the weekend, you can only start really unpleasant, negative campaigning if you've already established a positive platform for your party. Mm. Well, he hasn't done the latter. And I, I would just caution the Labour Party, if you're going to get in the gutter and say that Rishi Sunak, who's palpably a decent and a nice man, and I know him, that he's somehow in league with paedophiles and child rapists, it's dirty politics yeah. and it will backfire badly on the Labour Party, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. And it's not just dirty politics. It's actually untrue, which is even worse in a yeah. way. Um, and I read an interesting piece, I think it was in The Spectator, in which they said it proves that the Labour Party machine is now more obsessed with social media than it is uh, with actual people. And so, you know, while the Tories are out there kind of talking to people on the doorstep, meanwhile, you know, the Labour Party is trying to win Twitter, which, as we all know, is not the real world. Yeah. Exactly. And also, there were still elements of the Labour Party that are perceived by a lot of the electorate as being weird and out of touch and overly focused on identity politics and extremist positions on things like trans rights um, and, and other matters. And so I think, you know, the Labour Party are, are reading the lines about being fiscally uh, sensible and responsible and not... Uh, going crazy on debt and taxes but i don't think there's a real palpable sense from the british people that they mean it there whereas i think in the case of tony blair they did they could see that tony blair had their interests uh, in mind and was on their side i just don't think they have that and that's not to say the conservatives are doing well i think they're going to probably do quite badly in the local elections but remember there's 15 months to a general election that's an absolute eternity in politics so it is all to play for uh, i would have said six months ago that the tories would go down to historic election defeat i'm not certain that will right. happen i think it'd be a lot closer yes i think that's right but also um if labor were to win um a sort of minority victory if you like and they couldn't form a government and they had to get into bed as they've often said before that they wouldn't do with the SNP I mean that creates all kinds of problems given what the SNP are currently going through I mean who knows if in a year's time the SNP will even be a thing yeah well there is speculation and you've probably seen it Mike over the weekend that the SNP is if it was a company it would be declared insolvent insolvent yeah absolutely um, and um, it, it would it would be trading illegally um, against the law um, because it was insolvent. Um, we're in a weird position where that leaked video this week, uh, over the weekend, showed Nicola Sturgeon uh, robustly and angrily denying that there were any financial problems with the party. But we have weird, the weird situation where her husband, who's the chief executive of the party, was lending the party money. Uh, money appears to have been... Uh, misappropriated, not necessarily by that gentleman, but yeah. it, it, it appears to have disappeared. And uh, there is all sorts of problems. And there's speculation this morning, as you know, that uh, Nicola Sturgeon may very well resign as a, a member of the Scottish Parliament um, before the summer. So, you know, obviously hubris is often followed by nemesis. And, and of all the leaders in British politics over the last few years, Sturgeon has been the most hubristic, I think. And now we're seeing um, the other people, uh, including our success, having to uh, pull the pieces together. I think the SNP, we've reached peak SNP, and I think the only way now is down, which is not necessarily good for the Tory party, um, but it's probably good for British politics. And it's probably good for the union of the United Kingdom, isn't it? Very good, because uh, the polling is showing that people are beginning to say, well, look, 
they've been in power now over 10 years, more than that, actually, I think about 15 years, and they've not delivered the goods. What would they be like as a nationalist government, a national party running an independent Scotland? And I think Scottish people are, are very concerned about that. And you can see that in the polling. I think the polling now is about 55, 45 against independence. And I think it's only going to get worse for the SNP. And I, I can just imagine that... Uh, Poor old Alex Salmond, who was basically shafted by the SNP and yeah. the leadership of the SNP, is is probably chuckling into his beer as we speak. Well, we've had one or two conversations with Alex Salmond. He comes on the show on a re- re- reasonably regular basis, and I think he's he's seeing it very much without saying so. as a bit of an opportunity for his party to sort of take the high ground away from uh, the SNP, who basically tried to destroy him. Yes, and, and they failed, of course, and he was acquitted of all the charges yeah. laid against him. Uh, that was a very nasty um, uh, intra-party fight, and I think in some respects he was treated very badly. But, I mean, that's for the SNP, that's for the Scottish nationalists. I'm not a Scottish nationalist, and I believe in the United Kingdom. But it will be good for the UK because we will have proper three-party politics in Scotland or four-party politics with the Lib Dems. Um, and the idea of constantly fixating on an independence referendum rather than delivering on schools and hospitals and transport and other issues, um, that, that's off the table, I think, for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I think so. And I suppose more importantly for Conservative voters um, is the question of who are the Conservative Party? Who do they represent? What do they represent? Um, I saw that you retweeted Charles Moore's piece from The Telegraph the other day um, in which he's kind of asking exactly where is the direction and where is it all going? And, and that's kind of important as well. Yes, every election is a choice between hope and fear. And uh, fear sometimes motivates your supporters, but it's not enough. You need hope. And therefore, you need to distinguish between the two major parties, Labour and Conservative. Yeah. And it, in social issues and uh, issues of what I call social conservatism, um, such as trans rights, um, the way Christians are treated in our society, other, other issues like that, really fundamental matters. You've got to distinguish yourself from the Labour Party or else people will say, look, there's no difference on the personalities, no difference on the economy. They're all the same on identity politics. We might as well give the, the Labour Party a, a go. The Conservative Party's got to be different and it's got to be persuasive to traditional Conservatives as much as anything else. Yeah, I think so. Um, Stay where you are, um, Stuart, if you would. We're talking to Lord Stuart Jackson, Baron Jackson of Peterborough, indeed, Conservative peer, because uh, I want to talk to him about Brexit. I want to talk to him about France. I want to talk to him about the travelling across the Channel, which has been done by me uh, in the last week, once over that way and once coming back this way. And guess what? There weren't any problems. So there's nothing wrong with going to Europe. There is no Brexit delay. There is no Brexit hold-up. I'll be talking about that. Coming next with Lord Stuart Jackson. This is Talk TV. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We're talking to Baron Jackson of Peterborough about a great many things. And I want to talk to you now, Stuart, because you are absolutely known as Brexit Stuart on Twitter. Um, my trip to France at the, at, the, uh, at the last week, I set off uh, last Saturday, came back this Saturday, and uh, not a queue was in, in sight at all. I went with absolute um, ease over the uh, border from here to France on Le Shuttle and on the way back as well. And would you believe... Um, that it kicked off such, uh, in such a big way on Twitter when I said I'd actually managed to get to France and back without being stopped. It can't be anything to do with Brexit. 
Um, things like people were saying, oh, oh uh, well, you're obviously queuing in the wrong place. Uh, obviously, you're a liar. The school holidays are over. Um, it's not the real queue. Um, it's actually somebody actually went to all the trouble of saying that picture you sent from Calais can't be Calais because I've looked at the weather forecast for yesterday and it was raining um, or sorry, it wasn't raining. And your picture shows that the uh, the the the, uh, the road is, is wet. I mean, it's extraordinary how people react because they want it to be a problem. But actually, it's not. Yeah. And you probably more than most people do tend to trigger these deranged <laughs> remainers. <laughs> I mean, who, entirely uh, by accident, obviously. Naturally, not by design, Mike. No. But they, you're right, they see Brexit as an attack on their self-worth and self-belief and image of themselves as cosmopolitan, liberal, erudite internationalists and therefore they're going to look for any evidence that it's a failure i had a similar experience to you i mean i went abroad uh last year i hadn't had pretty much any holiday in covid so i made up for it and i had three foreign trips i went to turkey which wasn't is not in the eu which was very smooth but i also went to greece and spain and for instance i went through uh marbella sorry malaga airport in about 20 minutes right i mean and the same going back now that's a combination of very efficient airlines but also good um immigration control i didn't have a problem there have always been difficulties at the channel ports because the french uh, immigration staff and others have have periodically gone on strike it happened in 2016 it happened in 2015 i remember getting stuck mm. for two or three hours between folkestone and dover when i was going on the ferry happened the year before. So the idea that it's all been caused by Brexit is complete nonsense. It's like this idea that, you know, food price inflation is Brexit. When you look and compare to France, Germany, Italy, Spain, they have higher figures for inflation and, for instance, unemployment. So it's difficult to engage with these folks. You just need to get put the empirical data forward. And most reasonable people, even people I know, friends of mine who voted Remain are saying, Let's make the best of it. Let's get on with it. Yeah, absolutely right. And certainly, you know, food prices in France, where I was, were a lot more than they are here. So food price inflation has obviously hit them. It's not, that's nothing to do with, with Brexit. It's everything to do with the world's economy and everything to do with people sort of gouging prices if they wish to do so. So, you know, there's a lot of myth-making going on. But how much do you think you can trust Keir Starmer and Labour Party over the whole single market issue? Because, of course, he says... Uh, Brexit is done and dusted. He doesn't want to get back into a single market conversation. But do you really believe him? No, I don't. And uh, I'm very disturbed at reports that I've uh, read that the um, EU retain law bill, which is now in the Lords, uh, which has been a painful process in the Lords. Every uh, Remainer, Liberal Democrat, crossbencher and Conservative that was against Brexit is, has used the opportunity to try and slow down the bill and basically wreck it with wrecking amendments. That's happened uh, over the last uh, four to six weeks mm. in the Lords. And now the government are thinking of uh, of basically halting that bill. My worry is that if that happens and we still have de facto EU legislation on our statute books, it'll be an opportunity for Labour to come in and say, well, we're more or less compliant with everything the EU are doing, so we might as well rejoin the single currency uh, sorry, the uh, single market yeah. and uh, and the customs union, and I think once you've got into that position, it's it's a small a smaller step to say 
let's think about rejoining the EU, which would be crazy because it's a shrinking market. It's going to be within 10 years, it's going to be less than 14 percent of the global market compared to the Pacific agreement we've recently joined, which is growing uh, every year. Yeah, I mean, I always find whenever I'm in Europe, in any European country, I was in Italy last year, uh, France this year, I've been in Spain quite recently. You know, all of those countries seem pretty self-contained. You know, you don't get the sense when you walk around talking to people that they're all so, so reliant on the European Union in the way that we were in a way. You know, they're very sort of individualistic, aren't they? Yeah. Some countries, of course, like Portugal and Ireland, which were historically reasonably poor, have done very well out of the yeah. EU. And, and good luck to them. And I can see that. Although in the case of Ireland, they are going to be in a difficult position when the EU insists on upping their... Uh, corporation tax rate that's going to make Ireland a lot less competitive but you're quite right Um, we don't wish it ill to any European country I love Europe I like to go there like you but I just believe that um, they have to be um, liberal democracies they have to make their own decisions and we, we don't want to be in a position where we were tied for instance Macron this week groveling to the Chinese and saying you know that Europe's going to be the bulwark between the United States and China undermining the uh, efforts of the West on things like Ukraine. We don't want to be locked into that. It's Mm. up to us to make our own independent, sovereign policy on foreign affairs and defence. No, I think that's absolutely right. And what about the the other big story of the weekend, which also uh, got all the lefties going, was the BBC issuing um, uh, voluntary redundancy notes to people. People were making fun of me because Hugh Edwards said, oh, this is just an HR exercise. It doesn't mean anything. To which I said, yeah, it's always really, really reassuring when your boss sends you a letter to say, how do you fancy voluntarily resigning from the company and going somewhere else? And you go, well, you might call it an exercise and you might not take it up, but it's not exactly a vote of confidence, is it? No. Uh, I don't know about you, Mike, but in my experience, when my boss has sent me... uh, would you like to leave the company yeah. uh, in a redundancy exercise? Probably not unalloyed good news, I would say. Not I mean, really. That's just a wild guess. Um, I think the, the one I'm waiting for, the definite redundancy, uh, is the crisp salesman in chief yes. and agit prop uh, agitator, Gary Lineker. Yeah. And I think uh, that would be a great result. That would be, along with the coronation, that would be uh, a day of <laughs> outstanding celebration in May if the um, BBC got some balls and decided to sack Lineker to spend more time with his crisps yes. uh, and and his tax advisors. Well, listen, I say to all of them, let them all go out the commercial market. You know, you, who knows? We might end up hiring Gary Lineker here or, you know, Sky may hire him or somebody may hire him. But, you know, let's get it out of the BBC. They shouldn't be paying the ridiculous salaries that they're paying people. You should not be paid 500,000 quid, never mind over a million, which is what he gets. You know, some of the, you know, Hugh Edwards very kindly took a pay cut to get himself down to half a million quid a year. You go, you're reading yeah. the news, mate. You know, it's not exactly saving the world, is it? No, and the, the thing is that... that one wonders what their priorities are. They get rid of a guy like Ken Bruce on Radio 2, who is a consummate professional who has driven up the figures year after year, and Steve Wright and others like that on Radio 2. They dump him because he's obviously too old and unfashionable. And then they keep people like Lineker. I just wonder what's happening to the BBC that they're making those sort of ridiculous decisions. Yeah. Well, Don't get me onto Channel Channel 4 News and their... 
Well, I, I think I think Matt, Matt Goodwin, who's who's a, a relative sort of uh, new recruit to the Independent Republic, has got it right when he talks about these new elites. You know, the likes of Gary Lineker, Alistair Campbell. I mean, how dare he suddenly re-emerge as some kind of moral arbiter of anything? You know, the guy yeah. that, that, that was, was responsible for lots of people going to war in Iraq as a result of the spin that he put on things. Well, he's the king of mendacity, isn't he, uh, Campbell? And he, he masquerades as a sort of honest broker. I mean, it's laughable. But, it really is. You know, people, are, people aren't stupid. They know what Campbell's like and they know what he did and what he was responsible for. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Stuart, great to talk to you as ever. Thank you very much indeed. Stuart Jackson, now Baron Jackson of Peterborough, Conservative peer, uh, speaking absolute common sense because that's what we do here. I'm back. It is the Independent Republican, Mike Graham. Kevin O'Sullivan held the fort last uh, week gallantly. Uh, he did a great job. But we, we are now... In the, right, in the zone, right? Here was, here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk to Paul Scully, uh, who's Minister for Tech and the Digital Economy. I'm going to ask him, what's going on with this uh, alarm that we're going to get next week? Remember that? We talked about it just before I went away. The alarm that's going to wake everybody up at sort of three o'clock in the afternoon, unless you're running the marathon, because you're probably already awake, if that's the case. Uh, but we'll find out from him. Who actually is going to be putting these things out? It's quite a big question. This is Talk TV. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. It's great to be back, by the way. I was over in France last week, as you may have heard, and uh, it was a doozy, as we say. Had a great time. Then what was really interesting was I was in a part of France where they only spoke French. I know that might sound weird to you, but that was all they spoke. So I had to sort of get by with my pigeon French. And luckily, I didn't do what I did once uh, when I was in France and ordered what I thought was some medallions of veal. It turned out I'd ordered a cow's tongue, uncooked, uh, wrapped around inside um, a, a sort of a, a, an earthenware pot and covered in vinaigrette sauce. I said, yeah, of course, that's what I wanted. Lovely. Um, anyway, let's talk instead to Paul Scully, MP, Minister for Tech and the Digital Economy. Paul, a very good morning to you, sir. Morning to you, Mike. How are you? Yeah, very well indeed. Thanks very much indeed. I'm not going to make you do that thing that people on the left would make you do, which is some hard mathematics after Rishi Sunak's speech this morning. Um, but a lot of people are pointing <laughs> out to me that if you get too good at maths, you'll work out how much poorer you are than you were this time last year. <laughs> well, hey, no, it was a while ago since I did my maths A-level, <laughs> so I studied uh, maths until I was 18. But, uh, you know, always a good thing in politics to know how, how to add up. Yes, it's never a bad thing. But, of course, some people wonder whether anybody can add up in these days of, of, of politics. But we won't, we won't press you on that. Let's talk, first of all, about ULEZ, because um, while I was away last week, big uh, decision was made uh, in the High Court over Sadiq Khan and his ULEZ expansion plan, uh, where it said that he may have been um, unlawfully um, uh, in, in, the, in the process of doing it. So he may not have actually been legally able to do it. What's the latest on that? Yeah, it's exactly what we've been saying all along. You know, it, there were five uh, points that uh, the councils uh, raised, five councils, Harrow, Hillington, uh, Bromley, Bexley and Surrey. And Surrey is really important because, of course, they're not in London, right. but they're affected by ULES. They right. don't get the scrappage scheme and, of course, they don't get to vote for the mayor. Mm. But they've said um, all along that there are five points they wanted to contest. Two of those have gone through, um, through to be heard by a court probably in July. The most important two, the fact that he knew about the consultation results, that he skewed the consultation results, the fact that he, uh, you know, he hasn't done enough work on the scrappage scheme. So these are really crucial areas that the mayor has got to answer for mm. in the court. And what does it mean for him? Because if it turns out that he has skewed the data for his own purposes or if he has misrepresented it or if he has used um, data wrongly, whether it's deliberate or not, to, in order to gain an advantage, surely that was a resigning issue, isn't it? 
Well, I mean, he'd have to, the, the things with an executive mayor, you know, it's, it, it, he's going to have to take that upon himself. I think there's two things. First of all, we want to get the ULES postponed. Secondly, we want to scrap it. Uh, and thirdly, obviously people next May, in a year's time, will have the choice uh, of who they want as the London Mayor. Someone that uh, actually looks after London, someone that will deliver for housing, transport and of course crime when the Met Police is in special measures, fire brigade is in special measures, or, or someone like Sadiq Khan who will ride roughshod over Londoners because, just to follow his pet projects. Yes. And why do you think he's been so sort of crusader-like about this particular, you know, um, extension of the ULES. I mean, he keeps talking about 4,000 people a year dying uh, of air pollution. So far, as far as we know, one person has been recorded as having died of air pollution. The figure is wildly wrong and out, and nobody can back it up. There is no data. You know, can he not be stopped from saying these things? Well, look, for the, in terms of why he's doing it, it's, it's a legacy thing. He's got a book coming out. He's talking about a historic third term. It's all about him. Mm. It's, uh, what we need to be interested in is Londoners, the people who are actually being affected by this. Clearly, people want to uh, breathe clean air. There's always a cost and benefit to anything. If you don't, you don't want to have a single death, you don't want to have anybody um, affected by cars, ban cars. But that's never going to happen, clearly. Mm. That's just unreasonable. So it's all a balance. The 4,000 figure was based on a statistical model it's not um, evidenced by actual people it's uh, based on a mathematical model going back to the maths again and even in the report that the Imp imperial college said there were riders within that about how you should use that that sort of data and those statistics i mean i've been talking to people since i've got back from france and i've had a lot of people interacting with me on social media one of the things that you notice when you're driving generally in france is the roads are a lot better than they are here and the traffic is a lot better as well i know it's a bigger country i know there are you know fewer people in terms of density but, you know, as soon as you come back to Britain, you're in a traffic jam, there's a temporary traffic light, the potholes are everywhere. You know, why are our roads so bad and why are people like Sadiq Khan so anti-motorist? Well, I think, to be fair, if you go to Paris in France, it's a different matter um, because Anne Hidalgo, the socialist mayor there, is making big swathes of Paris car, uh, just totally car free. Right. Uh, and they already have a scheme yeah, where you can, fighting, yeah, to, um, you can come in, well, you can come in on certain <laughs> days and those kind of things. But none of them, yeah, exa well, exactly. There's a lot of trouble going on in Paris. But look, you, you're right. Sadiq Khan has been anti-car from the beginning. When we had COVID and we were looking to come back from COVID, he was saying we should not have a car-led recovery when we're looking about when he, when he extended the congestion zone and all of those kind of things. Right from the off, He's been um, trying to get people uh, out of their cars, which if they're viable alternatives, they're fine. But clearly, if you're in Sutton, my constituency, if you're in Havering and you're running a business, what are you going to be doing? You're going to be taking your stepladder on a tube or on a, on, no. a, on, on a Boris bike or something like that. It's just not practical. No, it's not um, even sensible uh, in many ways. And that's why Labour have got a problem at the moment, isn't it? Because they don't actually speak for the common uh, or garden working man and woman. They speak for the sort of uh, Range Rover Brigade in Putney, where they won a seat at the last election. You know, they don't speak for the guys in Havering, as you say, or, or the people who are running flower businesses out of, uh, out of Essex, or, you know, people who are running, you know, plastering businesses out of, uh, of Alpington. You know, the Labour Party does not represent them anymore. No, absolutely not. Um, you know, the, the man needs to get out of his convoy of uh, vehicles with his security detail and ride the tube, ride, get on a bike, speak to motorists, speak to uh, taxi drivers, speak to small business people, speak to charities yeah. that are being affected, by, speak to poorer people, which he said, he basically said lowest paid don't own cars. Absolute rubbish. Yeah. Absolute rubbish. This, the stats that he's got, he will pick and choose which statistics he needs for his own ends. 
It's, it's an interesting thing, and it's going to play out in the next few weeks, I dare say. Let's talk a bit about next weekend. We've got a London Marathon going on. Uh, I mean, if you're not running in it, uh, you'll be expected to hear an emergency alert at some point. Um, I think it's around about three o'clock in, in, in the afternoon. A lot of people have asked me questions about this, Paul, and I just want to try and, you know, set a few minds uh, uh, at ease, if you like. A lot of people have said to me, who is going to be, in the end, responsible for setting off this alert? You know, not, I'm not talking about the actual, um, you know, the drill, but if it was to be set off genuinely, who has got the ability and the right to do that? Is it a government department? Is it the emergency services? Is it local councils? Who, who can do that? <coughs> yeah, well, I will actually be running the London Marathon for raising money for Maggie's Cancer Centres around for you. that time. So that's probably probably around the time I'm crossing the uh, finish line. So it right. might be the fanfare as I'm going down <laughs> the mall. But uh, look, in terms in terms of who uh, who actually runs it, it's the cabinet office within government that oversees the organisation of right. that. Now, people, there is a setting on both Android and iPhones that you can switch off those kind of notifications because it's it's something that other governments do. It's something that actually we've done ourselves. Mm. Um, during not necessarily the alarm, the way the alarm works, but sending out messages right. around COVID and around local flooding and those kind of things. And this is simply a test. Yes, but what I'm saying is, is that can can only the cabinet office then order it to be set off? Is what I'm saying because what's not clear my understanding is, is what is, you know what is yeah, an my, emergency. Yeah, my understanding is that 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 those kind of national events would have to go through the cabinet office. It it would have to get signed off, but it's not my area of expertise. So it wouldn't be some it wouldn't be some bloke in Sutton Council saying, "Oh, there's a bit of a flood going down the road there." So by the station, so here's an alert for you. No, they'd have to be major events. Clearly, those kind of things need to be used very light touch uh, and only in extremists. So uh, that's why it would have that sort of ministerial oversight through the cabinet office. And while it's a big issue, even within the Labour Party, just finally, Paul. Uh, what's your view of the attack ads that they've been um, firing out right, left and centre? I mean, it started just before I went away. It went on while I was away. Um, a lot of people in the Labour Party are not keen on that tactic. A lot of sort of traditional Labour uh, members are saying this is not where we want to go. And yet Keir Starmer mm. seems to be kind of washing his hands of it all and saying, well, nothing to do with me, Gov. Well, it's interesting because, I mean, my, I know you've been away, but actually people that have been here right the way through it have still been talking about this now. Yes. And I think, and they've not been talking about it in a positive way. So I think that in itself, people can draw their own conclusions. Mm. Because, look, you know, do you seriously think that uh, the Prime Minister does not want to come down hard on um, people who are exploiting um, uh, children. No. That's absolute rubbish. So you've got to have a sense of plausibility uh, to, to actually come out with an advert, to have, have a connection with a member of the public. So what you were saying before, about just speak to members of the public and actually learn how to connect before you come out with that. But ultimately, adverts for the Labour Party will carry on governing. We've got lots to do in government uh, with the economy, with stopping the boats and with obviously reducing the waiting list. So we'll crack on with that. And there is some sign is there not of the, the gap narrowing you know Labour have been ahead for a long time um, but they're not as far ahead as they were no I think that's because once you see um, Rishi Sunak versus Keir Starmer and you look at Rishi you know he's he wants to halve inflation he wants to grow the economy reduce the debt stop the boats and uh, reduce the waiting list he's got some real measurable uh, tangible things there that are exercising everybody around the country with cost of living immigration and the NHS Keir Starmer's flailing around a little bit trying to find his niche because he's trying to um, get the Corbynistas back in he's trying to uh, you know work out those people that are sporting Angela Rayner and obviously there's still the uh, the North London lovies that are uh, that that it is core vote. So those he's he's trying to be all things to all men a little bit. Yeah, but not all women, obviously, because they know what they are. 
well, there is all that. I think Rishi yeah. was pretty clear on that as yeah, well. You know, so. It's a quite fundamental thing to, uh, to, to start with. <laughs> there we are. Paul, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Paul Scully. What a lovely view, by the way, uh, of the Houses of Parliament. It's a beautiful day. I have to say the weather's a lot better here than it is in France. Must be down to Brexit, right? This is Talk Petty TV. Talk, plain talk, unrivaled talk. Mike Graham, the only radio show you can count on for a proper serving of good old-fashioned common sense. In search of the perfect debate. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. The home of common sense. Talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. It is great to be back. I've been away in France for a week and, and apparently I managed to get back without... Uh, any problems? I managed to get there without any problems. It seems to have upset lots of people that that was the case because, of course, you're not allowed to go to Europe without uh, being delayed for at least 25 hours because of Brexit. Uh, but I wasn't. So there you are. What can you do? Uh, I'm very sorry about that. I apologise profusely. Peter Hitchens is here, however, uh, still uh, here. He was here last week with Kevin O'Sullivan, sitting in for me, uh, doing a great job. Peter, very good morning to you. Morning. Um, I'm delighted to see that uh, nothing has changed in my absence and that the world is still as mad as it was uh, when I left. If not madder. If not madder. Not to wit, I would have to say, that they now want to rename the Brecon Beacons because apparently beacon is a word which uh, does not fit in with the climate well, Apparently it will inc- encourage people to light fires. It will. Thereby yes. creating because global, of course, global heating. Yes. Um, I, I have to say, I, it, that took me by surprise this morning. <laughs> I thought this is, no, the, the, the higher ludicrousness is, is, is here again. It is mad. I was talking to my sister last night uh, who lives in America and we were just talking generally about how mad the world has become and how ridiculous it has all become and that you actually have to ask questions of people which they can't answer, yeah, such so, as, what do you think a woman is? Yes, but somebody said this morning, what, now this, uh, what is it, Colville in Leicestershire will presumably have to change its name. Yes. It will otherwise encourage people to burn. Well, exactly. And, burn and, and Burns Night, of course. And Burnley. Um, um, and Burnley. And Blackburn. And They're Blackburn. They're all in trouble. It's a bad thing, isn't it? It's going it's to be... Mean, I, did, did, I are they having a song? I don't You can never really tell. Well, they? as they said, and I think I said this the last time I saw you, that, you know, there were no real good April Fool's jokes this year because the actual reality of, of the world is so mad that you yeah, can't they, they spoof a story. There, was, there, wasn't, there wasn't a one that worked. No. You, couldn't, you, you kept thinking, well, this might be true. Yeah. The last one I remember that really got me was a was a, quite a good one, the Daily Mail about submarines going up the Thames. Oh yeah, I can't. But again, you wouldn't disabuse that one. No. Would you? you'd go. Well, I could see that. It, it possibly. Actually, yeah, you would. Well, <laughs> you can't get submarines up the Thames. I promise you. It, well, you probably can't. But you know, there's a lot of places you can't get submarines. No. I mean, I remember when they crashed a submarine into um, one of the lochs up in Scotland. Yeah, uh, it was a sort of a, a, a relatively new sailor who was in charge of steering it. And he managed to clatter it into the side of the loch. Yeah, my, but my favourite was when the, both the French and the British independent nuclear deterrents crashed into each other <laughs> somewhere off Spain, I think. <laughs> yes, it is all terrible, isn't it? You can just imagine the shouts. Um, Susan's asking it. how you crash a submarine. Well, you crash it into the side of the loch, you know. You can crash anything. If you yeah. Want to. Anyway, really here we go. How we got from, from, yeah. from the Brecon. The one thing I'm sorry I'm I missed. I'm going to carry on calling them. I'm going to continue to carry on. Yes, absolutely right. And very beautiful they are too. I managed to rile the Welsh over the weekend because I I was uh, partially tongue-in-cheek suggesting that Wales wasn't a country. Um, And to prove it, I said, I've got a a Welsh passport here and I put a picture up of a British passport 
which of course doesn't mention Wales at all, but that's the passport. Well, then you have, I'm afraid, the, uh, the other problem a lot of people claim they have English passports and they don't have... Well, them. people said to me, thinking that I was an English nationalist, well, then England's not a country either. I said, correct. Well, that's And true. neither is it Scotland. Isn't, it isn't. The only well, country no, is the I, United Kingdom. I have Kingdom. to say, I, I am completely in sympathy with the revival of the Welsh language. I think it's, I think it's great. It would be a tragedy if it was wiped out. I think all these things should be kept. That's great. But should it be part... Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Of the national curriculum. Though. Well, there's a different matter, I think. But I, I think it's, it's, it's very important that, it's, that, that languages and cultures this kind of kept alive. And I think we, 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 shouldn't, we shouldn't not... I don't have a problem with the Welsh Language Act at all. But yeah. the problem is, is that it costs more money. Because everything yeah, they produce but, in but the Senate... consider how much money we spend on total rubbish. Well, I did... Keeping uh, the Welsh language alive, by comparison, is really quite small. Well, I suppose so. But unfortunately, that's a, a, an argument that I can't in any way support because that's what everybody says it's like when people go why don't you give another 100 billion to the nhs it's only a small drop in the ocean after all now quite often when you you, you learn of some council that has that has, that has made uh, several people redundant at, at on the hundred and fifty thousand pounds ago and then hired them again six weeks later yes i think that's all the tax i've paid yes for several years well i've gone down the gurgler and it makes me quite cross but in comparison i say welsh language it, it, there's at least some good in that. I get that. Um, but also, given uh, that Rishi Sunak was up this morning at 10 o'clock, at the start of my show, speaking about the importance of mathematics and how everybody after 16... It reminded me of that Woody Allen film um, where the dictator of the country in, in Bananas, which is on South, South American Re- Banana Republic, <laughs> said that from, uh, from now on, everyone uh, who is under the age of 16 will now be 16. And it was kind of like that. He's going, you're going to have to learn maths after 16. You have to I, study it. 
Yeah, well, it's, but what worries me is the idea that the longer people stay at school and the longer they do things, the more they're supposed to learn. I think, looking back, that most of the important things I learned at school I'd learned by the time I was 13. <laughs> and all the stuff that came on top was not... Well, I, I like Jeremy Clarkson. But the rest of it was learned in, the, in, in remedial classes at the University of Fleet Street yes. over the past well, indeed. 40 years or so. There's a great column by Jeremy Clarkson yesterday, I don't know if you read it in the Sunday no, Times, afraid not. in which he said, basically, unless you want to be a lawyer or a doctor don't worry about your exams because they don't matter. And basically he said that all the people he's hired in the years that he has been hiring people, he's hired because they either had a decent pair of shoes or they answered some questions quite well in an interview. That may be true, but I do know people who have suffered needlessly because they haven't had certain qualifications. Yeah. Big, oh, I think big bureaucracies true. will often say, we're not paying you anymore, well, putting up a grade, if you can't show the particular piece of paper. One of the reasons I was never able to get a job at the BBC, shortly before they gave me one later later on, was when I, because I didn't graduate from university, yeah. I didn't have a degree, so I couldn't apply for any jobs. No, ridiculous. As a, as a radio journalist. I mean, I, the, 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 the graduates, uh, the, the insistence on, on, on graduates in journalism has been a great blow, because it's an awful lot of the best journalists who ever were, never went near university. Of course. Because they came up through the local paper yeah. system, which no longer exists. But going just back to Rishi Sunak and his mathematics, I had a series of questions ready for him. Um, for example, what percentage of my income is taken up by my new electricity bill? Which I'm not sure whether he could answer. Or yeah. indeed, how many strike days will it take before the economy collapses altogether? Well, my favourite question, of course, is, is how much inflation did you cause while you were Chancellor of the Exchequer? Yeah. If he's so good at why, maths... Why has my cup of coffee yeah. become so fantastically no, expensive? No, if he's so good at because maths... Because Rishi Sunak was Chancellor of the Exchequer. <laughs> why are we it's not so maths he was bad at. No. It's politics. Yeah, well... Which is how he became Prime Minister. That's indeed. Should we talk about Joe Biden? One of the things yeah, I'm sorry I missed Joe Biden, was, yeah. was Joe Biden's visit. Mm. Um, he visited a place that you've spent an awful lot of time in, you know very well. Um, and the funny thing is, is, because I know you so well now, as soon as I saw the picture of him with Jerry Adams, I thought of you. Of course. And I thought, well, I wonder what Peter Hitchens thinks Jerry Adams is my great friend. I have pictures of myself with Jerry Adams, but they're not so friendly. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's the, it, it, it was absolutely fascinating to see the d different ways in which he behaved south and north of the Irish border, yeah. which, of course, in the minds of most Irish Republicans, doesn't exist. Doesn't exist, right. But I, I think it would be fair to say that Joe Biden was a bit of an Irish Republican. But there was also some fascinating formal behavior. The presidential limousine, while it was in Belfast, flew two flags on the right. bonnet. One, the flag of the United States, the other, the presidential standard. As soon as it reappeared south of the border, it was flying the Stars and Stripes and the Irish Tricolor. Right. And so you would think, wouldn't you, that it would it would have been proper for it to fly the Union Jack when it was in the United Kingdom you would have in, thought. in Northern Ireland, but it didn't. Right. And interestingly, when George W. Bush was in Northern Ireland, I think 2003, mm. his car... Uh, flew the Union Jack and the uh, and the Stars and Stripes at the same time, right. and I believe Barack Obama did the same on a on I think a G seven visit a few right. years ago. But even more fascinating, you know, when Bill Clinton was over in two thousand in nineteen ninety eight, he he didn't fly the Union Jack, and also his advance team either didn't know what they were doing right. or deliberately sent him up the Falls Road. There's a lovely picture of him driving past the old Sinn Féin offices right. up there, which you probably remember, which yeah. have now been replaced by much nicer ones, I yeah. have to say. But it, 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 he's, he's not flying it. So I think that what you see here is particularly among, among de Democrats, that doesn't apply to Obama, obviously, uh, there, is, there is a feeling they don't really recognise United Kingdom sovereignty right. over Northern Ireland anymore. Yes, and they're not going to bother to show it. 
But I'd be very interested if anybody can come up with a proper protocol explanation which covers all the instances I've mentioned of how it was done. But it wasn't a state visit in, uh, in, no. in the Republic of Ireland. Uh, it, was a, it was an official visit, as far as I can establish, so it doesn't have any particular... Well, one of the things that Rishi Sunak supposedly offered Joe Biden was a state visit, wasn't it? Because he's not coming to the coronation. No. He did decide to go to Ireland. But I also liked your kind of description of previous presidents who have always claimed, haven't they, that they've got some kind of Irish heritage. Almost all of them have got. I mean, even all the way back to Ronald Reagan, I think, claimed he was well, Irish. I think, in, I think in some cases they do. But they, in the case of Joe Biden, of course, they also have British heritage. Yeah. But it... It's a, it, there is no there is no English American lobby in the United States. Right. No English American vote. Well, there's a very strong Irish American lobby. Uh, a lot of people think that they have Irish roots in, in America. You know, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, one of the problems about the United States it's so vast. You have to have something to cling to as an identity. One of the big things used to be is probably gone by now. In American big cities, uh, news agents would have stands of all the local papers. Yeah. Uh, from all over the country that people would buy because they really identified with the place they went to high school in. Right. But they also identify with these classifications, Italian-American, Irish-American. Yeah. The Irish-American one is very strong, even if in many cases probably their ancestors were Protestants. Yeah. They still go off on the P Patrick's Day marches. Right. And Irish-America is very rich as well. The insurance business, for instance, is very strongly Irish. Yeah. And they were very influential with Clinton. And this is why we got... And that the, kind of stemmed all the way back to the Kennedys, didn't it? It goes... The Kennedys were, were, were of course, because they came from Massachusetts, mm. where it's extremely strong. We're, of course, very mixed up with it. But it, it's, it's... Clinton, uh, who I was about as Irish as I am, and as interested... Less interested in Ireland than I am, I think, probably, right. nonetheless made pledges to Irish America when he got elected, which he didn't keep. And then they came back to him... Mm. Uh, after the midterms, and said, "Mr. Clinton, you're not doing as you asked," and that was when he 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 gave Jerry Adams the visa. Yes, from which everything else that's happened since has has, uh, has flowed. Yeah, and so what happens now? Because does Biden's visit, if you say it proves that maybe they don't now recognise Democrats, recognise Northern Ireland as part of the UK? Well, they don't. Do they? Um, how significant is that? Well, in in the end. See what happened, and this is what people. I see Hillary Clinton's there today, by the way. Well, that wouldn't surprise me. But what happened in in 1998 was that Northern Ireland became, and I use the word advisedly, a provisional part of the United Kingdom. Mm. One referendum can switch it from British to Irish rule, and that's all. That that referendum can be held every seven years. Right. If it doesn't come up with the result, the, the right result, that is, if, it, if the, the wrong result would be that people voted against yes. United Ireland, then it can be held again. If they vote for United Ireland, it can't be held yeah. again. So it's a ratchet. It's not. It's it's not. It looks fair and democratic, yes. but actually, it's a. Device. And I'm told the reason we haven't had one referendum yet is that they don't think they'll win it. No, they're biding their time. I think that the time will will come, and mm. all kinds of things, particularly the health service, need to be sorted out before it'll be an easy thing yeah. to do. But I think there's, there's very little doubt that sooner or later it will come. And the other thing that will, that that will mean is that the political party, which will then dominate all 32 counties of Ireland, will be Sinn Féin. Yeah. Uh, which I think is quite a serious thing. I I've, I, I worry about Ireland under a, mm. uh, under a Sinn Féin government, and I I think that people should be sh should be much more concerned about that. But I think that will be the inevitable consequence of it. Yeah, I think you may be right. Uh, Peter Hitchens is here. We'll come back. We've got to talk about uh, Ukraine, and we've got to talk about whether the SAS are there, and if they are, what are they doing? This is Talk TV on DAB Plus on the app, Talk Radio, and Talk TV. 
Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here in Talk TV. I was just talking to Peter Hitchens about my trip to France where I stayed actually in the Calvados region. We were just saying, did you manage to get some Calvados? The answer is yes. I didn't go around a Calvados, um, you know, sort of bottling area no, no. or anything like that. Um, but the wine and the, and the Calvados, the cider actually is very good. It's well. very good cider. Cidre. Yeah. Um, we were just talking about visiting Omaha Beach and, and seeing incredible, you know, just walking on that beach. And knowing what happened there, yeah, and how, y- quite, how young, how young, and I was there with my two sort of teenage sons, and I said certainly to the older one who was eighteen, you know, you would have been here in nineteen forty-four, yeah, and it's quite chilling, really. It's very moving. I do, it's the, the, the cemeteries there are impossible um, not to be moved by. Yeah, yeah, they really are. Which brings us on to Ukraine. You wrote about it this weekend, yeah. um, and the, the the revelation that came from the leaked documents leaked over in America yeah. that the SAS are there. Well, it's not a revelation, or, really. It's, I think almost all of us would have would have would have assumed this was so um, over over a long period. But assuming it's so and seeing it in a leaked document are two different things. And there it is, yeah. and therefore it, it makes it now discussable, uh, both in the media and in Parliament. And I think it should be because right. just imagine if some British Special Forces soldier was captured by the Russians, yeah. uh, the consequent, the, the political, diplomatic consequences of that. Or imagine, actually, if they were killed. Yeah. I also mentioned this extraordinary incident which is supposed to have happened over the Black Sea where a, a British reconnaissance surveillance aircraft was uh, allegedly shot at by, right. a, by, a, by a Russian jet, which only failed to shoot it down because its missile failed. What would have happened if yeah. the missile had not failed? Right. We're very much on the edge of things here. These are these would become acts of war, and since this country is a member of NATO, if if we found ourselves at war with Russia, then it would involve the whole of Europe in war with right. Russia. Well, the consequences of that are so huge. Hmm. Although again, one of the it should things... be being discussed. Yes, is, is what I mainly ask is is for because what generally happens if I try to discuss is people say, "Oh, you're just a Russian propagandist. You traitor." Well, I should point out to them that down all the centuries. The principal trick of the tyrant has been to to classify any dissent as treachery, mm. and the principal folly of people has been to believe this trick. We have to have in a free country discussion of of where and when and why we go to war. These people who are being sent into the, these these places these are these are obviously the sons, brothers, husbands of of, of the people living here. Also, their training, uh, their equipment, everything about them has been paid for by the British taxpayer. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the consequences of what they do will be felt by the citizens of this country. What is Parliament mm. for if not to discuss matters of this kind? And yet is there a single member of Parliament on either side of the House who's prepared to raise it? No. I and think there should be. Isn't it interesting that it's sort of post-COVID that we've reached this point where, you know, dissent in Parliament particularly, uh, is not really wanted. It was never wanted. National security you know, sticker on something, that's the end of that. It was never wanted, but there were plenty of people who were prepared to provide it. Uh, I particularly remember the, the Scottish Labour MP, Tam Dio, yeah. himself, who'd been a national serviceman, who knew a lot of, about the military from personal experience, and who, who would pursue very doggedly mm. things which were embarrassing to the government. And actually, Tam was a national treasure. Yeah. Uh, he was a very important part of the Constitution. But when he when he retired and died, he was not replaced. Right. And nobody seemed particularly anxious to replace him. I think there ought to be somebody sitting there now in the House of Commons who should think, this is a vacancy which I need to fill. Let's see you do it. Because right. it, it's an important part. If, 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 when, if, if, if we don't discuss these things in Parliament, we're not a democracy. Mm. And do you think it's because of the... Um, 
just the paucity of talent in um, parliamentary circles these days? Because one of the things, for example, that we do know is that Ukrainian troops are being trained in the UK, yes. and they've admitted that. This is, it is slightly different, though, isn't it? That's you, it is. It, I don't. I, 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 myself, I think it should should be discussed. But it, it, the, the, having Ukrainians come here is one thing. Sending our troops there is is, is a very a very different thing because of the danger in which it places them. But the, I think the big difference, actually, has been in the way that members of parliament have chosen. They used to be, in both the Labour Party and the Conservative Party, chosen much more by the local party. Yeah. Now what happens is there's, there's a huge centralisation of both parties, and people are parachuted mm. into winnable seats over the, over the heads of the, of the locals. And to get parachuted in, to get the blessing of central parties, you now have to be pretty much approved mm. of, yeah. and therefore you have to you have to toe the line. So the number of maverick individuals with uh, with their own points of view and their their own readiness to strike out in in different directions, who will get to be MPs, is very small. And it, it, it's also possible for independents to get elected yeah. to parliament now. And people say, well. Uh, what about um, well, the man in the white suit? What's his name? Who was elected? Oh, Martin Bell. Martin yeah. Bell. But people forget that he was elected because New Labour and the Liberal Democrats withdrew from the seat yes. to give him a clear run. Right. He wasn't independent. Of course, when he started kicking up a bit about things that annoyed New Labour, they 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 they, they turned on him. Right. Yes. And that's the trouble, isn't it? Because we hear all the time that people are fed up with the two-party system, but there isn't really an alternative at the well, moment. It is, it, people will, as you as, 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 as said, it's, don't vote. It only encourages them. Yeah. If, if people will continue when, when the parties placed before them uh, their own vetted candidates in safe seats, if people continue to play, with, uh, play this game, they shouldn't be surprised at what they get. I, I've often thought that mass abstention is, is a much underused political weapon. If you held an election and nobody came, and they, all the MPs had about 250 votes right. from their friends and relations, and nobody else had voted for them, they would have no power. They'd have no legitimacy. Yeah. It, no it, mandate. Voters went on strike, and then we could sack these two dead political mm. parties. And what this country needs is two new parties, yeah. a, a, a different kind of left-wing party, sort of Polly Toynbee type of party, and a different kind of patriotic, uh, socially conservative party, quite like me. Yeah. And the parties of uh, two parties of that kind would represent what worries people in this country much more. Mm. I do very much believe there should be two parties, and they should differ, but they shouldn't be the parties we have, which are kept alive by dodgy billionaires and and by and by the government system. subsidy and by broadcasting rules, which yeah. particularly on the BBC, which if you are an established party, give you a, an unfair share of. Well, I suppose in, in, uh, to balance it all up, you might end up with one less party in the next election, general, generally well, speaking, with the I, SNP disappearing up its own backside. The, uh, certainly, they do, they do seem They're trying to very hard to find some very, very serious problems, don't yeah. they? But I, I wonder whether they can pull themselves together. And I think Scottish nationalism is still immensely powerful. Yeah. Uh, it's just a party. Well, maybe, maybe Alex Salmon will make a comeback. He may well Albert do. party. Yeah. Well, I mean, the door is wide open for him to do so. It is, isn't it? I wonder. Mm. I, I do wonder. He must. He has a lot of revenge he must want to take. Oh, I think so. He's, ta he's taking it very slowly at the moment and being very coy about it all, but we'll see. We may talk to him later this week. Peter, good to talk to you. Thank and you very you. much indeed. Peter Hitchens, back, of course, uh, at the weekend and possibly before uh, in the Daily Mail and the Mail on Sunday and back with us next Monday. This uh, is... Not next Monday. Oh, you're not here no, next I, Monday? No, I'm afraid I have to give you a Are you going away? 
I'm, I'm, my lips are sealed. Okay, he can't tell us where, uh, as long as it's not Ukraine. Ah. <laughs> um, we'll see you after this. Coming up, uh, we're going to be talking, of course, about a great many things, including Net Zero, including Scotland, what's going on up there. And also, Simon Calder is going to be around, because I'm going to put him to task and say, why do you keep saying it's all about Brexit, that people can't go to France? Because it ain't true. This is Talk TV. The home of common sense. Talk radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV, here with you all the way through until one o'clock. Ian Collins, of course, will be here uh, after that. Vanessa Feltz from four, Jeremy Carl from seven. Uh, I'll be joining him tonight on his show. Uh, and then it's Piers Morgan back from eight o'clock. And the talk, of course, from uh, nine. Lots more going on uh, throughout the course of the day. We had Rishi Sunak this morning talking about mathematics and how important it is uh, that you study it even after the age of 16. But not everybody actually agrees. Rishi should start his math revolution in the Commons so that MPs don't make so many expenses errors, says Mick. Uh, and here's one from Ellie who says, Mike, if a child hasn't learnt basic math by 16, then they patently will not be interested at 17 and 18. I can't bear listening to Rishi Sunak's patronising voice. Uh, ridiculous, it sounds like listen with mother well it is a bit patronizing he does come across as kind of the top prefect in the school doesn't he um but there we are um lots of you uh, have got lots to say about that and we will continue to take your calls on it as well and rod says this mike why will all uk biometric passports not be sufficient for entry into the eu from the end of the year the biometric passport doesn't have fingerprint information and i don't understand why fingerprints are more important well, who can say? I mean, as we were saying earlier, the one place that you can be absolutely guaranteed to travel without papers or without passports or without any kind of identification at all uh, is to illegally cross the channel from France to England. That way, you don't have to worry about biometric passports or indeed fingerprints or facial recognition or anything else. Bizarre, isn't it? Never mind. Harry Wilkinson is here, head of policy at Net Zero Watch. Harry, very good morning to you. Good morning. Nice to see you. Um, good afternoon, I should say, actually. It's after 12 already. Time has flown. Um, I was away last week, so you may have to um, get me up to speed on all the things that have been happening in the world of Net Zero. But one of the things that uh, certainly seems to be going wrong is the rollout of Britain's heat pumps. What's going on? Well, the government wanted to um, spend all this money on actually paying people to install heat pumps. Right. These were these £5,000 uh, grants mm. to install heat pumps. They wanted to, to install 30,000 heat pumps right. in the last year. They haven't even hit 10,000. So that's under a third of the number of heat pumps that they wanted to install. So, I mean, it comes to really quite something, doesn't it, Mike? If even when the government is bribing people to install these yes. things, uh, they can't actually persuade people to do it. And I think this goes to the heart of you know, why their net zero strategy is so messed up. Yeah. Because they're trying to pick winners, they're trying to push technologies that aren't ready, uh, when they should be relying on the market, providing you know, the, the consumer with products that they actually yes. want to buy. That kind of transition will be quicker when it happens, because it will ba be based on consumers' actual choices. Right. Whereas what we're seeing is a load of money subsidising the wealthiest households uh, and even those households are having second thoughts because it's an incredibly risky business, yeah. installing a heat pump. It might work really well. Let's, let's not be overly harsh on them. But it's a huge risk because you may end up spending tens of thousands of pounds yeah. and then have much higher energy bills as a result. And most households, I think, just don't want to take that risk. And I know people who have had heat pumps um, who have sent me glorious kind of, um, you know, validations of them and said they're brilliant. Other mm. people who have said actually don't work very well, the heat, the heat they generate isn't really hot enough, the water doesn't get hot enough, uh, the house is cold most of the time. And you also have to have quite a lot of room to put them in, don't you? Yes, I mean, you need larger radiators, potentially. You need very well insulated houses. Mm. 
Um, and what we've seen with some people is that, that maybe their upstairs hasn't been uh, heated that well. Maybe in the summer it's got far too hot, yeah. and in the winter it's not quite warm their homes up to the standard they would like. Mm. Their water isn't as hot as it used to be. It's right. more tepid water. Right. So this is a product which isn't quite living up to people's expectations. And many people are also having huge regrets uh, once they've installed these right. things. And fundamentally as well, the idea that you subsidise with government money, which let's face it is taxpayers' money, as you say, people who are relatively well off, just seems to be the wrong thing to do in a cost of living crisis. I mean, the government seems to, keeps finding money to give back to people um, who don't need it. That's right. I mean, where the money should be going is on all the people suffering and barely able to keep their right. homes warm in the winter. I think the government needs to take a step back, really think about what's going to work, what's going to have the biggest impact, and, and where the resources are best going to be targeted in terms of the poorest yes. uh, people. We've seen some help for vulnerable households, but I think the government could go much further. And actually focusing on affordability of energy. These are a lot of sticking plaster policies. Yeah. We, we say we accept an expensive energy system and we'll give some money back to people. Far better to actually look at why the energy market is failing, why we have such high electricity prices, yeah. getting electricity prices down, and then a lot of the green policies may work out well on their own because cheaper electricity prices well, will enable a I've lot often, of I've often said this um, um, all along. You know, if, if things become cheaper, for example, if they made electric cars cheaper than petrol cars, lots more people would get one. You know, but they're not. They're more expensive. Similarly, if you know green sustainable energy is as cheap as they say it is, why do the bills keep going up? And what they should be working on is reducing the bills instead of paying people money to pay the extortionate bills, which then all just ends up going back into the pockets of the energy companies. When, when makes no sense, does it? It doesn't. And when, when electricity prices spiked uh, over this energy crisis, there were times at which it was actually not much different to fill your car up with petrol mm. compared to charging uh, your electric exactly vehicle right. at some of these charging points. So actually focusing on the cost of electricity you know, is, is a more simple objective, maybe harder to achieve, mm. uh, and even harder to achieve if you set yourself all these environmental targets and say they're legally binding, we have to meet net zero no matter what. Even though nobody then, can explain what that even means. That's right. Then you're limiting your flexibility right. Um, and, and making sure policy revolves around this singular objective right. when there are so many other things that I think the government should be And I think if you look well. at every regulator in this country, whether it be um, off-gem, whether it be off-what, um, they're all looking at net zero as the kind of guiding principle of what they do. Mm. Even the NHS is hiring more and more, you know, sort of sustainability coordinators and, and net zero coordinators. And you go, you're supposed to be helping people to get well. You're not supposed mm. to be helping the planet to live another sort of billion years. Similarly with the water companies, I saw a story when I was away that Thames Water was recommending uh, to people that they don't flush the toilet uh, after you've gone for a pee, basically. Um, which is complete madness and has now been derided as actually non-sanitary and probably unhygienic because they're worried we're going to run out of water. I mean, it's done nothing but rain since the beginning of February. You know, why are we, why are we not building more reservoirs? Because of net zero. Well, you have to ask the question, when you've got all these public institutions who, and even corporates as well, big companies, yeah. uh, hiring net zero sustainability managers mm. uh, and devoting a lot of resources, a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of attention 
on meeting net zero, when, what impact is that going to have on their operational effectiveness? How is our healthcare going to be impacted? How is our armed forces going to be as effective if they're pursuing net zero? Right. No one seems to be asking the question right. in these organisations, how is this going to limit us in what we do? Right. And uh, they're just pursuing this target blindly. Uh, and, and where is the scrutiny? Where is the accountability? Well, exactly. And if you are in the water business or the, in the power business, and if the net zero kind of um, target that you've set is causing you to have energy which is too expensive and unaffordable and, you know, a lack of water supply, then surely you're doing something wrong. You know, how about you do the job, which is to supply water and take it away? And similarly, to supply energy, which people can afford. I think it comes down to it sound difficult? a group think within yeah. a certain class of people who run all of these organizations um, where net zero has become such a fashionable mantra yeah. um, and they want to impress their peers who are also working on similar things rather than focus on what their core competencies yes, should be. Exactly. And so I think we need this goes right to the heart of, of how the British state uh, is dysfunctioning, unfortunately. Um, we need people to focus on what they should be doing yes. um, and, and spending less yeah, time... Yeah, I mean, it's the old do what it says on the tin. You know, if you're running a water company and you can't deal with the fact that there's not enough water or you can't deal with the fact that there's too much water mm. on two different occasions, you're not doing your job, are you? No. And, um, I mean, sometimes these policies really do impact people's lives very aggressively mm. in a much more punitive way when we see ULEZ, for example, yes. uh, in London, where the mayor has just doubled down on this policy. The more people complain how painful this policy is going to be, the more Sadiq Khan seems to double down on this approach. People just want to go to work. They just want to take their children to school. Right. Maybe they want to get to hospital. Maybe they want to care for disabled yeah. relatives. Uh, and, and these things are going to become unaffordable. And, and so Sadiq Khan is being challenged by six London councils who are, are saying that this is unlawful. Uh, and so that's going to be a key test of uh, his ULES policy. Yes. And uh, I will certainly be hoping that that, that and the courts policy have said gets defeated. this last few days that it may well be that it was unlawful what he decided to do. Well, they've allowed the High Court challenge mm. to go ahead. Right. So the, the arguments will now be fought out in court. And I think th certainly the councils will be arguing that the impact on the vulnerable uh, hasn't been considered. Yeah. Um, and this is going to particularly hit the poorest, particularly hit the disabled, um, and people who have no other choice but to use their cars. Right. Now, you can answer this question for me, I'm sure, because you know about these things. Um, I was in France, in Normandy. There's an awful lot of wind turbines there. When I say an awful lot, probably, I'm, I guess I would have seen a couple of dozen, you know, in a, in a road trip that I was on. Um, they seem to turn at a very slow rate. Is there a reason why they can't go faster? If they went faster, would they not generate more electricity? Well, I mean, when, when wind speeds are higher, you will see wind uh, you know, generate a lot more electricity and, and, and the blades would, would be spinning faster as well. They can't spin too fast, otherwise they may, might overheat. And sometimes you see in storms wind turbines spinning so fast that they you know, explode. But well, that's very rare. They should switch off. I was off. wondering if they took off or something. <laughs> they should switch off when the wind gets too fast right. uh, to, to prevent that from happening. Right. Um, but, but I think France is, is a key example where you had a country that had done a really good job of producing low-cost nuclear energy, still has a big nuclear fleet, 
um, but they're being distracted by renewables. They achieved essentially a zero carbon mm. electricity grid that produced cheap electricity for people. That should have been the gold standard. But they gave and up now, on nuclear. They're, they're, now yeah. their fleet is getting tired. They're mm. not making the investments they need to be in, in maintaining that fleet. Right. They're getting distracted by renewables, uh, which is only undermining the economics of the existing nuclear power stations further. Mm. Um, and wasting resources mm. when they have a zero carbon electricity grid as it is. Right. So this is completely baffling from the French. And in Germany, they're actually switching off nuclear power and relying on coal yes. instead. All in the name so they've of, gone backwards, in other words. Yeah, and all in the name of environmentalism. It's the Greens in France, it's the Greens in Germany who are pushing anti-nuclear uh, protest and anti-nuclear right. movement. And, and they're actually pushing emissions up as a result. So they don't even... You know, they're not even very effective at achieving the objectives that they say they want no. to achieve. It's a kind of collective madness that we're living through. And it seems to me that those of us who pointed out, and certainly the Sadiq, Khan, Sadiq Khan's case, uh, are labelled as kind of nutters and Nazis and right-wing Covid deniers. And it's quite simply just common sense. Well, the debate often goes in, a, in, in the same way, which rather than go into the detail, into the technical specifics, into the economics, into the questions about how this is going to impact on people's welfare, they would much rather it stayed binary. We're the believers, you're the unbelievers. Yeah. You're the deniers, right. and we're on the right side and of history. And you're the stupid people. And that is a, that is a totally binary discussion. Yeah. It doesn't get anyone any further in terms of advancing right. policies that work. They just want to shut out the questioning of their policies. Um, and it seems to be happening on a global level. We've got this establishment who wants to push... Uh, green policies without thought for what impact it will mm. have without knowing how net zero will even be delivered right. they just want to push it through aggressively and and people have to stand up and say actually we we refuse mm. to accept how they're framing this well because they also whenever i ask people and i've had people on uh, from grant shaps down um what is it that you think you're going to achieve when you reach mm. net zero they can't answer that because they don't know it's, it's staggering. You look at the ministers and you think of the people who are voting for them and the Conservative members who choose them to represent the party uh, for their local associations. None of those people are, are, are telling them, you know, go for net zero. This is something that's come from the top down. It's being pushed from above. Yeah. Um, and if only they would listen to the, you know, the, the voters and the members who are actually saying, we just want you to focus yeah. on you know, improving the economy, getting uh, productivity uh, to improve. And Britain is in an economic malaise. We, we haven't seen serious improvements in, in median li uh, wages mm. for well over a decade. You know, the government should be asking itself the question, why has it presided mm. over a period of such low growth, such poor performance? And surely uh, the environmental uh, targets, the environmental obsession that it's been undertaking has to be a big part of that. Absolutely. Harry, good to see you. Thank you very much indeed. Harry Wilkinson there, Head of Policy at Net Zero Watch. The problem, of course, is that as the years have passed, the government has got bigger, they've started taxing us more, and they're doing more than we didn't ask them to do. I don't want any of that. I want them to give us back more of the money that we make, and I want them to stop heading headlong into this mad Net Zero crusade. It's bonkers. This is Talk TV. <laughs> 
Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Got lots of you who want to say many and many things. How's it about this from somebody who doesn't give a name? My resentment against paying the TV licence fee, i.e. Lineker et al. salaries, has developed into a rage. The BBC News Channel now appears to be broadcasting Radio 5 Live. The BBC has now degenerated into such an appalling, pathetic service. Endless repeats filled with long-deceased actors, no live sport worth watching, talentless presenters, etc. The law needs to be changed. I do not wish to give my money to the BBC for them to waste. Well, it's a perfectly valid argument, a perfectly valid thing to say. And certainly when it comes to big sporting occasions, many of them, of course, which are reserved for uh, free-to-air TV, the BBC doesn't have much of that left, does it? The Grand National, of course, on uh, Saturday was on ITV. We're going to talk to Brendan Powell now, former jockey and horse trainer, won the uh, Grand National in 1988. Brendan, a very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Mike. How are you? Yeah, very well indeed. Good to see you. Thankfully, uh, the Grand National went ahead yesterday, despite the best efforts of the uh, eco-nutters or whatever they are, uh, who decided that they could glue themselves to various things and try and disrupt it. I was worried, actually, watching it, that they might somebody might try and sort of run onto the track, as they did uh, in one of the Grand Prix last year, because they don't seem to have any understanding or any knowledge of what it is they're, they're disrupting. Um do you think that, that this is a kind of watershed moment, though, for horse racing? Because if they can do it to the Grand National, what else can they do? I mean, yeah, it's um, yeah. I was actually there because we had a, we had a couple of runners in it um, over from Ireland, ah. and yeah, at the time you knew something was going to happen, and when it did, and I did actually say at the time to a couple of people that all it's going to take is one person to get in front of a fence when there's forty horses yeah. hurling down dangerous for horses and and the person doing it right exactly right and this is the trouble you know they don't seem to understand what it is they're doing i mean i've had a couple of calls today from people saying oh you know maybe we should not do away with the national but make it into a flat race make it into 20 horses instead of 40 you know there's a sort of fundamental misunderstanding isn't there out there by a lot of people who don't really know what horse racing is all about i mean yeah i mean uh, you know i think basically over the last uh, I mean, when I won it in 88, the fences were, they, they were a lot bigger. Yeah. Uh, they were a lot more daunting. Um, you know, there was always 40 runners. Uh, you know, and I used to feel at the time, yeah, it was it was a great spectacle. But, you know, because of health and safety and, um, and the public's perception, the BHA and the Jockey Club have done everything over the last 15 years to make it as safe as possible. And what we've got to remember is there were actually only four fallers in the race on Saturday, right. but there was there was eleven horses um, that unseated the riders, so they didn't actually fall. So there were only four fallers, and um, you know I walked the track because my son rode in the race. He was actually one of the fallers at the second, and uh, I walked the track with him beforehand. And the difference between you know twenty years ago and twenty five years ago compared to now, they they are a lot more sort of uh, friendly for for horses. Yes. But it wasn't any more, if you want to use the word, dangerous back then. I mean, you, it might have appeared to be, but in terms of, the, say, the casualties of, of, of the numbers of horses that, that would have had to be put down, they weren't, they weren't any more, it wasn't more dangerous for horses, even though it was more arduous as a, as a ride, right? No, not at all. And, um, you know, I think, yeah, you, you probably rode it a lot different back in those days because, you know, with the drops they had over beaches. I mean, you look at beaches now, when they jump it, you, you actually don't even realise that they've jumped beaches. Right. So, you know, every time I watch it, but you always did know back in the day. And But as I said, you know, with, with everything the way it is, with, with especially with all these, um, you know, animal lovers, and, and we all love animals, but, you know, they had to do something to make it safer and a lot easier. Right. 
But, I mean, will the Jockey Club take this as something that they need to take account of? Uh, will the horse racing authorities look into what they need to do to kind of... Because the problem for me with a lot of these people um, is like with Extinction Rebellion, they ended up getting invited into the House of Commons to meet Michael Gove to talk about how we could reduce our carbon footprint, you know, despite the fact that most of them um, wouldn't know a carbon footprint if they fell over one, you know. And they're just basically these kind of out-of-work students, long-haired hippies, and I'm sorry to, 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 to you know, tar them all with that brush, but that's kind of what they are. They don't understand the welfare of the horses. I mean, it turns, it turns out that the trainer of Hill 16, who, who did die as a result of the race, I mean, the trainer's saying it was probably due to the fact that the, the race was delayed. Yeah, I mean, the thing was, it was, uh, you know, we were in the paddock and these horses were tacked up with uh, saddles and lead, lead weights on the back. And especially uh, like um, one of the favourites, Annie's second now, who'd been mm. second in the last year. And, you know, he was carrying 11 stone 12. So instead of walking around for 20 minutes with that on his back, um, you know, he had to walk around for 45 minutes. So, you know, that's more stress for a horse. Um, Most of the horses, in all fairness, they were were taken to the pre-parade ring, some back to the stables, and the majority of them were fine. But, you know, Sandy Thompson has said that his horse got wound up. There was always a parade before the races, so the horses get out there, they walk, they're kept relaxed, Mm. The you know the girls and the lads who know them, uh, they walk around the start. But on Saturday they had to rush out of the paddock, rush down to the start, and then rush the start, and that just didn't help. No, of course. So I mean, what's the community of of, of, of people like yourself saying today? I mean, obviously you know there will be flat races. I mean, I was at Ascot once in a flat race where uh, a horse died. Um, it happens. It's one of those things, but it's not something that happens an awful lot considering how many races there are. Um, is it, is it a price? I mean, it's the wrong question, really. But, I mean, is it just a price that you pay for being in that business? I mean, I think it is. I think it's in every sport you're in, whether it's motor racing, whether it's, um, you know, horse racing, you know, athletes running. You know, I'm afraid accidents are going to happen. And, um, you know, we, we, we you know, we've had horses who you, you know, bring back from the races, you turn them out in the field, they come back in with an injury after being kicked or falling in a field mm. or going through a railing or something. And I'm afraid, you know, it's it's going to happen. Mm. And whether it's flat racing or not. But the one thing I will say is that in the last 15 years that the fatalities on the race courses have actually dropped to 0.2%, mm. which is, you know, we, we don't want any, but it is going to happen. But I think for, for dropping to 0.2%, um, you can see that everybody is doing everything in their power. You know, the race courses are made safer. The ground is looked after well. There's plastic railings up in case a horse goes through them. So everything that's done or everything that can be done is being done. Yeah. Do you see any sort of peril for the future of the Grand National because of this? I mean, I remember years ago we did. And then I think Red Rum came along and, um, <laughs> you know, he he, uh, he sort of, I think I think a horse like him saved the National after winning it that many times. Um, you know, I spent three days up at Aintree again this year and I've gone there sort of most years since since I started riding and then training. And, you know, everybody you see up there, they love the race, the crowds that were there. Um, but, you know, these people, they're targeting the national. But as you said, these things happen at Taunton, Wincanton, you know, in Ireland, at Kilbegan, Ballinrobe, you, you name it, yeah. everywhere. These things happen. And But as I said, you know, the horses get the best care and attention um, we do everything to minimise uh, the, the risks of injury. Um, it is going to happen. And if that's the case, 
um, if they want ra- you know racing stopped. I don't think they just want the national stopped. They actually want horse racing yeah. stopped. Well, this is it. I mean, I was speaking to a caller today who said, well, may- maybe, you know, um, they should just re- stop the national. And, and I said, well, no, because if you give these people an inch, they'll take a mile. They'll want to take a mile and they'll think that's some kind of victory. And then they'll just march on to try and get the Cheltenham Festival cancelled. and They'll try and get Ascot cancelled and they'll just keep going. Yep, and then I think there's, you know, in in Britain alone, there's there's probably fifty thousand thoroughbreds. So what do we do? Find them fields to go out in? No, there's not enough. Um, they just want to see them out in the wilds, like deer, rabbits, hares. So we turn them all out, out, let them run down the motorways, and then see what happens. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. I wish you well, Brendan. Thanks very much indeed. Brendan Powell there, former jockey and horse trainer, uh, won the National in 1988, is now a trainer. Uh, Here's what um, Sandy Thompson said. Uh, He said that the delay unsettled everyone. Uh, It was all caused by these so-called animal lovers who are actually ignorant and have absolutely no idea about the welfare of horses. Uh, he says, and it was his horse, of course, uh, that did die, fell at the first fence. And, you know, if they really want to stop cruelty to animals, maybe they should go and invade an abattoir. Maybe they should go to a farm and start picketing that. Maybe they should try and save the planet for the cows. But no, they go to the Grand National because they think they'll get their picture in the paper because that's how sad they are. And I think it would be a great shame uh, for whatever reason that you think that the Grand National shouldn't be run it is an institution in this country, and if you want to start doing away with institutions because something happens that you don't like, well, I'm sorry, you don't get to make that decision, I'm afraid. This is Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So if you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.